Hey, BSP fans, it's Tim again, and you're listening to episode 32 of the Black Swamp Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in, and feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Then drop us a review and throw us some stars if you listen on Apple Podcasts, as that always helps boost our exposure and push our little episodes out to more percussion enthusiasts like yourself. Just a little bit of housekeeping uh, before our next interview here. Uh, There's still another week to take advantage of our current snare drum sale. Uh, Basically, we have a collection of snare drums that are available to ship quickly. So if you're shopping for a snare drum in a hurry or just looking for something special, uh, check out the quick ship snare drums we have on our website. Uh, You can either visit our homepage or follow the link we'll drop in the show notes. Uh, Plus, you can receive a 10% discount when purchasing through participating retailers. Uh, We're also in the middle of our 2021 Percussion Ensemble Showcase. Uh, Full details can be found on our website and also linked in the show notes, which include entry requirements, deadlines, and 2021 prizes. Uh, Divisions include the high school small ensemble category, uh, college multi-percussion solo category, and a snare drum solo category for both high school and college students. Uh, 2021 judges include Andrea Benet, Matthew Lau, Nathan Daughtry, and Dan Smithiger. So I got to know Melanie Vojtovich over the last few months while Black Swamp was helping to sponsor the Mini Works program through the New Works Project. Uh, we spent a fair amount of time in this episode talking about uh, New Works, of which Melanie is the founder. Uh, this includes sort of her vision, uh, goals, and the commission process involved Most all of this centers on accessibility and diversity within the music world, uh, which is a huge part of Melanie's work and which Black Swamp is proud to help support. Uh, I enjoyed getting to know her more, uh, talking about a few things we had in common, and as always, learning more about what's happening in percussionist lives that are helping to shape the percussion community. So here we go. Hi, Melanie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're we're officially starting now. So yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me on the Black Swamp podcast today. Um, you are a school teacher. Is that correct? That um, is. Like a public school teacher. And I tried to set up our our conversation like in the middle of the day. And you were very kind and said, no, that's not going to happen because I teach. I have a job. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, I, yeah, I I appreciate you. I think you just got uh, out of school shortly, I guess, um, because you're you're in Seattle now, which is, uh, well, it's 7.30 my time. Let's do math. First thing. uh, 4.30. 4.30 in Seattle. Okay. So. Gotten really good at that with our board members across the (laughs) U.S. Yeah. I'm, I am, I'm not so used to as, I mean, you think I would be because I have dealers, uh, customers like retail customers all over the world. Um, but mostly it's like an email thing where, okay, I'll email them today and then I know they'll get back to me overnight. So then I can email them. So that's as close as I get, but, um, so you're in Seattle and part of the reason I want to talk to you is, um, well, a couple of things, but it, it seems like you're building like a cool community there of, of, uh, contemporary percussion. Um, you're doing some collaborations, uh, like with dance and other percussionists and you have a cool, um, commissioning, uh, company i guess or like it's a 501c3 organization called new works project um so it seems like 
you know, and on top of that, you're obviously teaching and, you know, you're getting your doctorate. So you're kind of going to school and doing that stuff. So you have a lot of stuff going on and some of which I, or all of which I find pretty interesting. So that's kind of what I want to dig into uh, today. Um, so first, let's go back in time a little bit. I love time travel. Uh, it's <laughs> it's fun, whether whether it's like Terminator style or a hot tub time machine style, or I've, I'm really into Star Trek. So there's like all these like kind of like quantum kind of flux things or like time, time warps they go on, which is, is always kind of fun. Um, so you went to school um, and I'm going to let you talk in a minute. This is usually, this is how most podcasts start too. I just do a bunch of talking up front. I kind of get all my words out at the beginning and then I let, I let the guests talk. So you'll have your chance in a second, Melanie. Uh, just hold on. Uh, so you went to Hart School, which is obviously on the East like on the East Coast, and then you went to Buffalo, which is a little further west, uh, SUNY in Buffalo, and now you're in uh, uh, Seattle and also going to the University of Washington. Is that correct? Yes. So how, how did you go from East Coast like to West Coast? Like what, <laughs> what happened? Yeah, so I actually grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. Um, so uh, to be honest, like as a high schooler, I, I don't know if most high school students feel this, but I was like, I want to get as far <laughs> away as from my family <laughs> for college as I can, just so I can have this like independent experience, right. um, but still be close enough to, to come home for like a weekend. Um, so looking around, I applied to a couple of different schools and um, Hart was the one that seemed like of the ones that accepted me the most like um, the most challenging school yeah. um, and like highest expectations uh, and also gave me a, a generous scholarship. So it was right. kind of hard to say no. Um, so yeah, I went out to Hart uh, and then after, after Hart was over, I just decided to move back home um, and actually for a year went to SUNY Buffalo for elementary education thinking okay. that you know, maybe I will get dual certified in music ed and elementary ed to make myself very attractive as a candidate. Um, but, you know, quickly realized this isn't where I want to be and transition to performance, going back to that. Sure. Um, so that was and, at the heart. So that was at heart then? Oh, uh, that was at SUNY Buffalo for okay. my master's. Yeah. Oh, I see. Sure. Yeah. And then after that, like I, during my master's went to go visit Seattle a couple times. I went for a week and then I went for the summer and I just really loved the environment of the city. Um, I had previously had dreams of moving to New York city. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, a little out of my price range at that point, right. um, and just really liked Seattle. So I ended up looking through the programs there and, and moved out here. Right. Um, so the first thing I think of, obviously, the hard school is Ben Toth, who I, I've i met before, and I know I've went to school at the University of Akron, and Matt Dudak, um, who kind of teaches there now, and I was friends with, and still I'm friends with, but kind of knew really well at Akron. I know he was a student of Ben's at the hard school, and then I knew a couple other people went to school there. Um, so, I mean, did you kind of know about Ben prior to so going out there, was that part of your decision making, I assume? Uh, no, actually I didn't. I didn't Okay, know I don't assume well. that. I, I take yeah. that back. 
Um, actually, it's interesting of the schools I went to, I think I knew more about the ed program there oh, okay. versus like when I applied to some other schools, I, I applied to like um, Ithaca, like Gordon Stout, um, right. and then um, of SUNY Fredonia, Case Stonefeld. And so actually, yeah, so I knew that was the one program I think I applied to that I knew the least about the actual teacher, Sure. <laughs> um, but more about like the ed program. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I knew when I was going to school, I did not want to be a band director and uh, for various reasons. And obviously you, you kind of figured that out too, maybe a little bit, um, but there's like this, this wide, um, and maybe it's not, but I perceive like you're in the ed program or you're studying contemporary percussion, like with, with Ben, like, or, you know, you did, you kind of made that decision, I guess, when you got to Buffalo that you didn't want to be in education, but like, was there, was there some sort of, you know, what was kind of that defining moment where you're like, no, I want to pursue something uh, in music, but totally opposite than, than education. Um, I wouldn't actually say that I wanted to go opposite of education because, you know, my full-time job right now is teaching and I do love it. True. Um, I do actually feel like I'm torn between both worlds. So I do really, I think that I am great in the classroom. I love working with kids. Um, I also know that I love like contemporary music and I, my goal is to be able to do both of those things, yeah. which I think can be a very lofty goal because they don't always work together. And right. we see a lot of people who are very dedicated to one or the other. Right. Um, sorry. Go ahead. No. Yeah. That's what I find really interesting is when, when we were kind of emailing back and forth and setting this up and you're like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a school teacher. So I'm at, you know, I'm working at school during the day. And I was like, wow that's like super cool like you you're you're working with kids and and education in that sense and then you have all these other interests and activities outside of this which you know performance based and and stuff like that so how do you kind of have you been balancing that well um <laughs> it's hard to say so i've actually only been a full-time teacher for the past three years and two mm -hmm. of those were in portland oregon um in which Portland doesn't actually have like a very, at least that I saw, like a very thriving new music scene. So to be honest, there wasn't a lot of performing that was happening over those two years. Because sure. um, I don't really consider myself like a solo artist. I think I thrive on collaborations and that's the thing I really love to do, creating community. Um, and with a smaller community, it was a lot harder to do that. Um, so up here, I mean, it's all been, everything's online and with COVID, like I just mm -hmm. moved back in August of 2020. So I haven't really had the opportunity or the um, challenge really of balancing performing right. and New Works Project and teaching. Yeah. So right now I'm just doing two of those things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about New Works Project then. Um, and for, for listeners that don't know this, let's see if i can summarize it here and then you can correct me uh and jump in so basically this is a, a sort of a commission organization where i i sometimes i've described it to a couple of people as like sort of crowdfunding commissions sort of where people can buy in or like uh yeah buy into a piece from a from a composer and instead of paying you know the you know uh, commissioning a piece by themselves they can kind of buy in as a group and then have access to this piece 
uh, either for a limited time, perhaps, or for limited performance or, or something like that. Um, uh, okay, so I, I horribly described. I, I <laughs> okay, now the authority. Now go ahead and tell me what it actually is. Yeah, I mean, you got pieces of it for sure. Got pieces of it. <laughs> let's, put the, let's put all those pieces together then. Yeah, so um, our main purpose or um, goal is that we run consortiums or commission projects um, where, which actually I started in 2014 because as a grad student, I came back from Chosen Vale leaving, I don't remember who said it, but one of the um, guests or one of the teachers that were there uh at Let's one just of the say talks. Doug. Just say Doug said it. That's Doug, fine. sure. <laughs> Doug Perkins right. said, "You know, if you want to do it, just do it. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Do it yourself." Right. Um, and so I was like, "Yeah, I want to commission new music from composers, so I'm going to do it." And then I remember emailing Ivan Trevino and saying, "Like, how much is it for me to commission a piece from you?" And he responded something like thirty-five hundred dollars. <laughs> right. At which point, grad student me was like, "Yeah, no, it's not happening." <laughs> Like, I really want that to happen, but it's not, it's not going to. Um, yeah. And so uh, I just started to think about like, well, like consortium model stuff. Um, Sorry, can our, you ex explain consortium then? Yeah, consortiums is essentially what you said, where like a collective of people okay. will sort of buy in together to reach that end fee that the composer is looking for. Right. Um, so the first one we did was actually a Kickstarter um, where just could buy in at different levels. And I think like a hundred dollars got you a copy of the score that was signed. Oh, um, cool. And it was pretty basic. Um, no like saving options or anything else as one time. And wasn't very community based, I don't think. Um, our second one, the play more, save more model oh. um, for commissioning. So where com com the commissioners get a year to play the piece and every time they play it, they end up paying less in the end. Um, and for him, for Elliot specifically, I believe he said like that is a model that works for him really well. And then he likes, and I also understand that it doesn't work for all composers. We've, we've actually um, asked our composers how much they value that trade-off, some of them other than, more than others. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that our, commissioners really value that in making it accessible so our idea was like how low can we get this and we have actually had somebody who has performed the piece more than 10 times in a year and so their end fee was zero dollars oh wow yeah and um so we try to make it really accessible we're talking about other ways where we can continue to keep making it even more accessible financially while still continuing to honor um, how much composers are receiving for their work. Right. Well, I think one of the, the key words I wrote down as I was uh, semi-preparing for our conversation here was accessibility, um, which kind of came up in a couple different uh, ways. And so in this sense, I mean, you're making pieces accessible to, um, or helping make them accessible to people that might not be able to afford it otherwise. And so, um, for instance, I was, I was trying to explain this concept to my wife, like over lunch today. She's like, who are you talking to tonight? I was like, oh, it's like Melanie. And she runs the new, new works project. And here's what I think it does. And, and that, and that was part of it. It's like, you know, you're young percussionists, you know, might want to play new works or be kind of be involved in this process, but 
can't afford $3,500 for Ivan Trevino or, or more, whatever. So uh, it's a way to kind of be involved in the process, makes it accessible to a kind of a wider audience of performers, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, and then kind of the second word or like thought uh, that I had coming into this was also equity, because I think there's a large part of, of this new works project that is about um, uh, equity and diversity. Can you talk about that? Like how that kind of took shape or what the idea was? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, when I started this project by myself, I for sure, um, looking back at our previous ones, if you notice, like our composers that are featured, um, definitely highlight blind spots that I had mm -hmm. um, in programming and representation. And I'm very thankful for, you know, Dave Bulk is the first person that joined our board, um, does a lot of work in, um, or a lot of reading and discussions on equity uh, and came in and really like helped me, you know, not as the only person, but helped me see like a lot of ways that New Works Project could be doing better mm -hmm. um, and kind of highlighted those ways. So ever since then, we've been really focused on, you know, how just doing better, like being a leader in what a diverse program should look like. Um, and what, you know, really trying to normalize, like this is, this should just be normal. Sure. Um, and, um, sorry, the other one, oop, I thought, did you ask about, oh, diversity and equity? Yes, we're equity. also yeah. talking about in terms of our commissioners now looking at those as well. So equity and commissioners, are we just providing opportunities that are still accessible only to like people who already had access maybe, mm -hmm. and maybe they couldn't afford the 3,500, but um, you know, maybe somebody still can't afford $170 that's out of their price range and they don't have access to performance opportunities like undergrad students who maybe only have one recital or maybe two opportunities to perform a work. So re really examining like who are we serving to sure. and is that an equitable program? Yeah. And because are there, I guess I'd have to go to the website, but I mean, there's, uh, I wouldn't call them scholarship opportunities, but there's like kind of other financial opportunities for people that wouldn't be involved. Yeah, so the the mini works program that just closed right. um, did did actually have a scholarship opportunity where you can do a full scholarship for that. Um, we are looking into scholarships for our full core series programs in the future. Uh, it's not something we offer yet, but we did just introduce college pricing. Um, so if you're a high school or undergrad, you have um, each performance is worth more of a discount right. and then graduate again, um, a little bit less until you get to professional, which is the standard uh, thing that we've been doing so far. Yeah. Cool. And kind of going back to accessibility, I mean, there's some, at least in the mini works project, um, there was some like instrumentation, instrumentation limitations, I guess you could say like, like to also make it an accessible performance for people that, you know, they can't, they don't have a marimba or they can't, you know, lug around a bunch of instruments. Like it's, so it's a more, more accessible uh, kind of performance opportunity. Like yeah. that, uh, that was obviously intentional. 
Yeah, and we do that in all of our core series too. MiniWorks is even oh, cool. more to like toned in or honed in on um, making sure it's very small yeah. and accessible. But all of our works, we ask the composers to consider like one or two trips from the car to the venue. Um, <laughs> beca because um, for people who are professionals, but maybe don't have university access, mm -hmm. um, those are the people we want to include as well. So maybe they don't own a marimba right out of school, but they want to continue to play and we need repertoire that is for those people as well. Um, but it's still repertoire that is quality repertoire that mm -hmm. someone in college or collegiate programs might pick up to also include. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned something um, in, in some of our email correspondence that that stood out to me. And I think it's tied into this, it, um, basically an attempt to build community support and make it less exclusive and intimidating, like exclusive and intimidating, I, I think is, is pretty interesting because yeah, if, you know, if you don't have a marimba or a vibraphone or you don't have access to that, then it can exclude you from, from performing those types of pieces and, or it can just, be intimidating like it from your perception like like how is how does that help decrease uh intimate the intimidation factor that might come up um i think new like commissioning new music can seem very like difficult like i remember being yeah. an undergrad student and looking at the graduate students at heart that were doing a lot of like playing a lot of new music and commissioning works and that I don't feel like even at a school like Heart that is very new music focused, mm -hmm. I don't feel like I ever learned about that process or how does it work and how can I do that. Um, so I think until you're in it, like right now to me, it seems very easy and I understand mm -hmm. it, but I think it's about like educating people and saying like this is easy and it doesn't have to be complicated and really expensive, but you can be part of the community doing this as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Back in my day, I, you know, I, I, the, the thought of actually commissioning a work never occurred to me, especially as a graduate student, um, like when kind of wanting, wanting to play something new, like I just played what was existing, I guess. And like kind of the thought never, um, like occurred to me, like, is that something as, as a student that you talked to? or talked about like with in, in school or with fellow students, like actually like, Hey, I want to play something new. So I'm going to approach this composer and, and see what the process is like. Like that was kind of part of your, your academic era. Um, I'm not in my undergrad. I did have a close friend that ended up switching to a composition major uh, yeah. that ended up writing for me, which I think kind of started that process. And I think yeah. that was more, just by luck, right? That I had a friend that was like, I'm gonna write a piece for you. And so in grad school, it became, that's when it started to become more, um, you know, oh, I'm interested in commissioning new works. And right. so I reached out to some old, um, you know, uh, classmates from Hart that have gone on elsewhere to commission from them or people that were at SUNY Buffalo with me to commission. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, it just really started more in grad school, I did have a good base. We had like five or six grad students there. So it was kind of a nice um, opportunity. I think everybody yeah. was kind of commissioning and that was sort of the culture at that yeah. school at the time. Interesting. Yeah, it's more part of the conversation now, you think, in schools? 
I don't know. Okay, I know if I can yeah. say it's both in general. <laughs> no, no, I want you to make a blanket statement. I just want you to. No, that's cool. I know. I, I I guess it's interesting that it that at least in at SUNY and Buffalo was like part of the conversation. I do think at heart that there's so many composers and like there's composition faculty and there's just a lot of new music being generated that it's almost like there's so many performance opportunities that you're, you don't even have to like seek out additional ones. So I think that's maybe where the shift was where at SUNY Buffalo, it's more on you to like look elsewhere. Like where Mm -hmm. can I perform like at an art gallery or something and who can I commission new music from? Because it's not just like, you're not inundated with new music that's already being written. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's on you to kind of seek that out. Yeah. Cool. So as far as composers go, are these like in the new works project specifically, are these, are these people you've worked with before or you always kind of have your radar up or like, how are you, how are you developing? Cause you you were talking about, you know, you enjoy collaborating. Um, Like how do you kind of develop these relationships? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually, the only person I had worked with before was Ivan. Uh Um, He came out to Seattle and did, um, like I brought him out when I was at UW as a TA um, to do like a weekend with us and put on a performance and do workshops and whatnot. Um, All the other ones are just people that we have found Um, either through internal recommendations or externally people emailing us and saying, hey, you should check out this composer. Mm -hmm. Um, But now (laughs) a lot of that work is actually done through our program managers, um, Paulina and Lara. Uh, They kind of sift through the, the body of composers that they can find. And we have a rolling list of people that we are interested in um, and kind of propose their top two or top three Mm -hmm. um, by season. Yeah, cool. I mean, part of why I was curious is is in the MiniWorks um, project, there was Joe W. Moore. It was participating as a composer. And that's how you and I kind of initially got connected because Joe is a like a BSP educator of ours and somebody that I've kind of worked with before on, on video content and educational content and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, you don't have to tell me specifically, but I just am kind of curious, like how how like you started to form these relationships, and maybe with Joe specifically. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's cool to be able to to work together on, especially on a project with Joe, who's awesome. Yeah, Joe actually. Um, funny story: we did interviews for our education chair position. Uh, for the board uh, in the last year. And one of our questions was, if you could suggest two composers for organization, who would they be? And it's sort of to gauge, you know, how well do they know us and our aesthetic uh, as potential board members? And multiple people said Joe. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And we were like, this is probably a, this is a really good fit. <laughs> right. You know, Ding. we did feel some ideas from those interviews. Thank yeah. you if you interviewed. Right. So, yeah, cool. I'm just curious. Today's episode is brought to you by Wrist Grips. What are Wrist Grips? They're compression wraps for musicians. They are a one-size-fits-all, 100% cotton, virtually indestructible, vegan, and USA-made compression wrap to give you relief from stress injuries, numbing, or wrist pain. 
The folks at Risk Grips were kind enough to send Tim and myself a pair of Risk Grips to try out for a week. During that time, I wore wrist grips while I was practicing drums and guitar, I wore them while I was recording and performing, and while I was working out. If you find yourself having wrist pain while practicing or playing, you could likely find a lot of benefits from wrist grips as you work to correct your technique and form. The cool part about wrist grips is that they offer a 90-day money-back guarantee if you're not fully satisfied. So hit the link in the description and consider checking out wrist grips for yourself. Wrist grips. Compression wraps for musicians. Today's episode is brought to you by Primephonic, the streaming service designed for classical music. Primephonic is here to save classical music for the streaming era. The app features high-res audio, radio on demand, curated playlists, and podcasts with famous artists. Times are tough these days, but Primephonic pays classical musicians in a fair way, paying per second and not per track. This is a huge deal compared to the other services that only pay artists per song. The app features a massive catalog featuring some of our favorites here at the shop, like John Cage, Steve Reich, Evelyn Glennie, and Ivan Trevino. For a limited time, Black Swamp podcast listeners are getting two months free of Prime Phonic with the exclusive promo code BLACKSWAMP. Visit the link in the show notes, enter the promo code, and you're good to go. Again, that promo code is BLACKSWAMP, all caps and all one word. Prime Phonic, the streaming service designed for classical music. Yeah, so one other, kind of, I guess transitioning, I guess, to another project of yours, which is um, Beyond Observation, um, which is a, a dance and percussion, again, collaboration. And well, why don't you tell me about it? But I have a couple questions, and if if you get to one of them, then I'll jump in. But if you could just talk a little bit about this project, obviously with a choreographer, and then the a visual artist is involved, um, and then some audience participation or interaction. Um, yeah. Um, so that was actually part of the Cornish Arts Incubator. Um, residency, which we had um, a 21-day residency with them. Uh, and so the choreographer is Britt Karhoff, um, and she sort of created her own um, company to work with her. Uh, she was pregnant at the time, so mm. she choreographed and um, rather than dancing. And our visual artist was Marika Kaiser, um, somebody I was actually an undergrad uh, while I was a TA at UW. She was a an art major, but she was also doing percussion. Um, okay. So she did the amazing like tape, gaff tape art, uh, which was just so visually stunning in the space. Um, the whole idea behind it though, was sort of this examination of what role can the audience play in a performance? So what we essentially did was created sort of four sections of music and dance um, and we started the piece based off where people were standing in, in the lobby of, we were in the lobby of this huge space. And so wherever the most people were, that is where we started our performance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like that, we are doing the upstairs section or we're doing the stairs section or downstairs. Um, and around like a lot of the choreography, Britt decided, um, you know, if people are sitting in the couch area, like, um, or if they stand up or move, the dancers like respond to how 
the audience is is moving around the space and interacting with the space mm -hmm. uh, so it like directly changed the performance and like what happened um and in some of those instances we had like radios and sound that also changed depending on what people were doing mm -hmm. and it was it was interesting because once they started to figure it out they realized oh when i move something happens yeah okay um, and so it yeah that's ramp up no that's yeah that's one question is like um how obvious was it i guess and, and so it just sounds like it wasn't totally obvious at, at first that you know people's just movement or motion or whatever kind of normal activities uh were were kind of fueling some of you know either dance and music like mm -hmm. where the yeah, like basically the yeah. entire performance that was going on so yeah and there were some aspects that were more obvious so we had actually um like service bells i got these really fancy service bells and um, prepared them in different ways and put them around mm -hmm. the space and uh, some of them were obvious that with like arrows saying press here uh <laughs> in, in which it would alter how fast i was playing the motive so i would either go to double time or half speed mm -hmm. um and i was uh collaborating with another musician so he would say steady i would continue to sort of like loop over him or i would switch instruments um so some of them were more obvious whereas like you press this button and something happens and some right. of them are we're just feeding off what you're doing sure there was so when i was kind of looking at at some of the notes i think on your website about it um there was uh, you had something written about elements of indeterminacy improvisation and pre-composed material so uh, talk about okay talk about that but like what's the difference between indeterminacy and improvisation i guess and because obviously you know you have some pre-composed material like something that you know but then there there's some improvisation involved i don't know how that works uh you know you can tell me and then the indeterminacy maybe is what you know you're feeding off of of the audience like that's is indetermined or undetermined if i'm interpreting this right but can you yeah. talk about those three aspects a little bit yeah so you're right on with the indeterminacy that is the specific section of that was the seated area upstairs that we had right. that was couches and chairs and um responding to what people are doing and moving around if they're sitting or standing up um and I, you know, I can't remember the exact specifics, but there was some motions where we would, it would cause us to change channels on our radios um, and to do like different things, um, change the volume, depending on what other people are doing. Um, and also like some of the decisions that the dancers made um, based off the audience. Mm -hmm. And then for improvisation, there were sections, um, there was one section of the piece where it was entirely improvised music within a scope where we would say you know we're looking for this um this kind of mood with the improvisation um and that was also the section where they could press and change instruments where i want you to improvise on a different instrument now um to sort of change the aesthetic that's happening yeah uh, so how do you prepare for a performance like this that's indeterminate uh or you know I, and then there's kind of multiple disciplines you know there's there's music and dance and then you have to be aware of of the audience sort of the unknown i guess a little yeah. bit you have to make it known at, at, at some point but how do you prepare 
Um, so because it's a residency, we were actually required to have two showings as part of the residency. And so the first one we really used is like a <laughs> workshop kind of thing. So we yeah. just introduced our, or in, invited like friends and, and, you know, closer people where we could sort sure. of say like, we're using you as a test so we can adjust for the performance, right. you know, that happens at the end of the three weeks. Um, so it was a lot of like, how did that go? You know, examining the, the, the workshopped version of it essentially. Yeah. Um, and there were things that we altered. Of course, we were like, this didn't work. This didn't translate. You know, people didn't realize that they needed to do X, Y, Z to change something and nobody utilized it. So maybe it's not obvious enough or in a, in a spot where people can see it. Um, you know, we also, <laughs> I think at the first showing we had some chairs like right in the middle of everything to see if people would sit in them and <laughs> nobody elected to sit in them. <laughs> so everyone stood that's on the, the outside. The hot seat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were saying, well, maybe that seat isn't, isn't working unless you have somebody that's very brave that wants yeah, to sure. sit in the middle by themselves. <laughs> right. So. Uh, so you, I mean, is there a way to kind of determine if the performance was a success, quote unquote or you're like you're like if it works whatever happens happens and it, and that's a success yeah i mean i definitely think that the second time we did it was very successful like all of the plans that we had utilized for you know if someone does this mm -hmm. i think act like triggered at least once um and some of them were things that had to have happened like right like where are people standing right. um that's that's unless we have no audience right. <laughs> that's going to happen right? right um so yeah i think i thought it was very successful i had a really good time um yeah. people utilized all of the bells actually the second one was great because we also <laughs> we had music like uh percussion setups around the room <laughs> and during the first one upstairs um somebody downstairs decided to start playing the vibraphone nice <laughs> <laughs> figuring out like twinkle twinkle little star or something yeah, um like, so it's like a, a music music circus or something happening yeah <laughs> so we added a little bit more to the, the piece that day <laughs> yeah interesting oh that's cool like, again i mean part of the the collab collaboration i guess and and combining um kind of interdisciplinary stuff like um I've been communicating, well, a, a guest on a prior podcast, Gloria Yehalevsky. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about some of this stuff and she's actually working on a project now with like a um, kind of multimedia thing, you know, um, uh, music and um, in, in art and multimedia and stuff like that. So I think it's, I don't know, it's, again, I, I, I'm, I'm a little older, so like I that stuff that was never even kind of uh, part of my my concept for performance when I was um, when I used to perform. Oh well, never mind. I digress. Uh, so yeah, I think it's cool. It's interesting. Congratulations. Um, and then on the other side of that, you're a public school teacher. So <laughs> yeah, so you, yeah, doing yeah, weird things. <laughs> yeah, like so. You are you a music teacher then, like like a band director, or is it a more of a music academy? Like, what's going on? What's your yeah, day so, look like? <laughs> um, it's different every day. I teach grades four through eight, so I have a split position right now. Even though I'm full time, I do half of my day or my week is teaching grades four and five, like 
first instrumental music experience, like pull out lessons in school. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other half is I work at a middle school doing band and orchestra. Um, I actually did Suzuki violin as a kid, so oh, okay. I'm also skilled in vi like <laughs> violin and orchestra side of it. Yeah. Cool. Um, but yeah, so that's where I am right now. Um, I don't know if it's uh, it's not the position I'll be in forever, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm a little curious about is is there a way? I mean, you know, you're working in a public school. You got to teach kids how to read music and hold. Uh, a violin or a clarinet or hold drumsticks whatever like but is there room for uh like conversations about new music is there room for kind of conversations about uh indeterminacy or like collaboration like do you ever kind of integrate that in some of your teaching yeah um for sure i think there is so i love this conversation of like the game of like, is this music? Mm. <laughs> um, so like most recently, um, so Bill Solomon, who I went to heart with, mm. uh, yeah, posted cool. a video uh, that he shared a video of um, like a 30 minute work of like new music in Animal Crossing, the video game, <laughs> right. which I watched the yeah. whole thing. And I was like, this is fantastic. And I shared a little bit with my kids and I asked them like, is this music? Like, and you know, kids connect with that. They're like, oh, that's so cool. It's a video game. But yeah. also like the sounds that are happening, are these, is this, is this music? Um, I've also done a little bit of, not this year since we're online, but in the past I've done a little bit of like, like cage-esque things, sure. um, you know, you know, between like the number pieces, um, sort of inspired by that and just finding like sounds and listening, and, you know, what, what is, what makes music like what what is music mm -hmm. um and i think that that's for that age group that's about as far as as you far can as like yeah we're <laughs> yeah. not going to be reading some contemporary yeah music right now <laughs> well no i think it's it's cool to at least begin to expose them and i mean it's like a lot of things like you know you have to kind of gauge your audience a little bit or like like you know you're not going to talk to yeah a sixth seventh or eighth grader about new music the same way you're going to talk to a college student about it, but at least it's part of the conversation. And I don't know, part of the reason I ask is because my daughter has been in orchestra for this is her third year and plays violin. And I think she enjoys it. Like I hear her practicing and it, it, it sounds good, you know, like, and, and I've encouraged her sometimes, especially when she was kind of when she's, I don't feel like practicing, you know, I don't want to do my 20 minutes three times a week or whatever right now. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe try improvising or maybe try like, okay, you, you know, this, you're playing through your music for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, then spend five minutes, like making something up or like being like trying to work on some creativity as opposed to just the notes on the page. Like, I don't know, try to do something different. I'm I'm sure your your orchestra director wouldn't care if you like tried to experiment a little bit. So I don't think she does. I <laughs> but <laughs> I, I mean I don't think my daughter uh experiments, but um I don't know. I'm just kind of curious uh, if that's ever part of the conversation at that age. So it sounds like it is, yeah. which is cool. Yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was gonna say that 
that and um, I'm like a big proponent of not just using like classical repertoire for that age mm. too. Like we spend a lot of time looking at, you know, here's the old white men that wrote for us <laughs> over and over. Um, right. And these are the, this is what is good and right. And especially like I teach at a school that is like 30% white kids. Mm. Um, and that's not something that they connect with and sure. nor sh should it, should they need to. Yeah. Um, so I do spend a lot of time, you know, trying to branch out and saying like, well, the music of today is also valid and good. Mm -hmm. And if you want to learn that music and that's what inspires you, that's, that's good. That's fine. Like we should do that then because music is about enjoyment and like having fun and not learning, you know, the thing that I think is important or the music I think is important. It's yeah. like, my goal is that you're learning your technique and that you can read your notes and your rhythms. And if you're doing that with a song that you like, then we're all happy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, no, I think that's cool. I mean, just, I guess, kind of broadening the, the scope a little bit. Um, like, just released a conversation with Josh Jones, and he was talking about uh, basically like building Spotify playlist and listening to like all, like a whole spectrum of different types of music. Um, I mean, his is more to play, you know, uh, to, to, if you're working on like some exercises or something and make it a little more interesting and to, but he's playing to like a whole wide variety of music and has different, whole different levels of, of interests in music. So yeah, just kind of, I guess, broadening, broadening their, their concept of music. Like you're talking about, like, what is, is this music? And, and then also like, yes, <laughs> it is. And if it makes you happy and, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, then, do it. Go for it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I quickly covered kind of everything I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, so, I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to, to have a conversation about or plug or, or kind of let people know about what's, what's going on in your world? Uh, hmm. Well, the New Works Project has... Uh, commissions, some of their core series commissions still open uh, mm. from November. We have Justin Green um, on clarinet and, or sorry, on percussion, doing a solo mm. percussion work. And then um, Victoria is doing a um, solo clarinet work. Uh, and so both of those are still open and available. We will also have new ones opening in May. Uh, so keep your eyes out for those. And yeah, I think um, I think that's all we've got going on this year for yeah. terms of commissions. So. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so, sorry, one other question before we kind of sign off, and and I, I don't think I really emailed you about this one, but it, it's not too complicated. It's not too stressful. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the the communities that you're building and the projects that you're working on. I find inspiring and like encouraging, like what uh, kind of, what are you doing? Like either reading, watching, listening to that kind of keeps you inspired or kind of keeps you like uh, moving, moving forward or continuing to kind of develop some of these, these projects and interests. Yeah. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um I think, 
think really the biggest thing is right now for me right now is like reading about issues of race and equity mm-hmm. and just like learning more about that listening to uh, BIPOC voices um modern marimba and following them has been really inspirational for me um yeah i don't it's just i think it's a lot of just like one-off resources looking at articles seeing Mm -hmm. what just like listening um is really what's keeping me inspired to keep doing the work in the music field um and just yeah individuals that i follow that i'm like you're doing great work and no like a specific book or anything no 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 that's cool like i totally appreciate that because i feel like i am constantly doing the same thing like i have i got browser tabs open of of just of articles of kind of research i've been doing exactly what you're talking about diversity um and inclusion um social justice um uh, religion i mean all these kind of areas of that of interest that i have and i'm constantly listening to podcasts um the guys that work are like podcast nuts Every, everything from you know politics to economics to to social issues um and so we are constantly like like uh bouncing stuff off of each other hey you should listen to this you should listen to that my wife is a graphic designer and can listen to podcasts basically all day and it doesn't uh, really bother her. I have trouble like listening at work. Obviously you can't listen to podcasts all day. Uh, (laughs) You might get distracted (laughs) too, but like I, I tend to just stop what I'm doing and zone out and listen to what people are saying. But my wife can like work and do her job and listen to stuff, but we're constantly like, like texting each other, like, Hey, check this out, listen to this, um, read this article, do whatever. And yeah, I think it definitely has been keeping me like motivated to learn more and and to exactly like you're saying be like sort of expand the the voices <laughs> that I'm that I'm reading and listening to and hearing. So, um yeah, I appreciate it and I appreciate the work you're doing. So, cool. Thank you. Good job. Where can people find you? Um, newworksproject.org and uh my I don't, I, I'm not going to say my personal website because I <laughs> might be changing the okay. address soon. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, um, cool. But yeah. Uh, newworks.org. Newworks.org. Yeah. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Follow, follow us. Yeah, for sure. And we'll throw all that stuff in our show notes and, and all the, all the good, all the good bits and pieces. So thanks, uh, Melanie. I appreciate you taking the time and now you can go have dinner or, do whatever you want <laughs> whatever you need to do whatever's next in your day so um yeah i appreciate the time and it's a pleasure talking to you thanks yeah you too thank you yeah this has been a bsp production recorded and produced out of the black swan percussion facilities in zealand michigan audio and production assistance by nathan cools intro and outro music by adam hopper music sprinkled throughout the episode featured performances by melanie a digital collage performance of Dave Molk's work, Hope, curated by the New Works Project, and the Benedict College Percussion Ensemble, performing Benedictus by Joe W. Moore III. Visit the show notes for this episode to find YouTube links to some of this music.